Good morning. It's good to be with you again this morning. If we haven't met, my name is Tom Darnell. Uh, I'm a minister in the denomination of this church, the Presbyterian Church in America, and I am mostly retired, uh, but uh, about 10 hours of my life each week is given to serving our regional area of churches uh, in central Tennessee uh, and southern Kentucky. That's called a presbytery. Uh, my title is the pastor of spiritual formation in my ministry, so my uh, particular job uh, is to pastor the pastors uh, in our presbytery. There are about 85 of them, so uh, there's a lot of work to do. Uh, there are a lot of cats in our presbytery. They're hard to herd sometimes, <laughs> but uh, it's a joy uh, to be involved with them pastorally, uh, and that's what I do with 10 hours of my life each week. Well, most of you uh, do have or uh, have had uh, a job where you go through some kind of assessment after a particular period of time, right? And, and typically that time period is a year. Every 12 months at least, there's some kind of an assessment. And so you, perhaps, in preparation for that assessment, review your job description because you know that's going to be talked about uh, to make you better prepared uh, and to benefit the most from the assessment that you have. Uh, and that's the point of an assessment, uh, is to make you better uh, and more skilled and committed to the job you're called to fulfill. Uh, it's a wise thing to do uh, in the marketplace. Well, the sermon today has a very similar tone to it. Uh, it begins with a reminder of the uh, Christian's point of uh, their future assessment and how it's to impact the way they live their Christian life now. So let's look at 1 Peter 4, if you would, with me. And I will read this passage, verses 4 through 7, 7 through 11, rather, in chapter 4. 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11. Clear views uh, of the end impact the way we live life now. Verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling, as each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let me pray. Father, as we come to this short passage this morning, we do pray for hearts that are tender toward the work of your Spirit in us. We pray for the concerns we carried through our last week, maybe concerns we have for the coming week. We would be able to lay at your uh, feet and let you take them. And that, Father, our hearts would be unobstructed to the work you wish to do in us now. We pray that through your word that you would reveal yourself. You would reveal more about who we are as you see us. And you would reveal more what you've called us to be and to do by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, this we pray with great thanksgiving and great expectation because we pray it in Jesus' name. 
Amen. One of the main themes of Scripture is not just this passage we read here in 1 Peter 4, is often the repeated encouragement uh, to prepare for a final assessment conducted by God the Father and God the Son. So the Scriptures uh, tell us uh, that we are to be ready for a standing before God and before His Son uh, in the end to give account of ourselves. Romans 14 talks about that. 2 Corinthians 5 talks about that. Hebrews 4 talks about that. Much of Revelation talks about that. In fact, in Revelation 20, we are instructed that on the day of accounting, multiple books will be opened. One's called the Book of Deeds, and another's called the Book of Life. And if one's name is found in the Book of Life, their uh, fate uh, will be eternal life. And if they are not found, their name, in that Book of Life, they anticipate an eternity uh, of eternal torment. So the passage in Revelation makes it clear uh, that the essential truth concerning this final assessment is this, that the eternal destiny of, uh, of every Christian is determined by their name being in that book of life. And it's not by what's recorded in the, book of, in the books of deeds. So their eternal destiny is determined by the book of life recording of their name, not their deeds recorded uh, in the books of deeds. So theologian pastor John Piper uh, has said this about Revelation 20. He says that it teaches this about these two books. Piper writes, No one is saved by the record of their deeds. But does that mean that the books of deeds are useless when it comes to the judgment of those whose names are in the book of life? Piper says, I don't think so. When Paul says in Romans 2, 6, God will render to each one according to his works, he does not mean that works save us, but that works confirmed that we are saved. Fruit does not make a tree good. Fruit shows that the tree is good. <laughs> For the believer whose name is written in the book of life, the other books become books of confirmation, not books of condemnation. In addition, we read this in Romans 2.16, that on that day, when according to my gospel, Paul says, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. Theologian John Murray says this about that passage. He says, Believers are justified, or made right with God, by faith alone. And they are saved by grace alone. But two qualifications need to be added to these propositions. One, they are never justified by a faith that is alone. Two, the concept of salvation involves that we are saved uh, to as well as to what we are saved from. We are saved to holiness and good works. Holiness manifests itself in good works. To suppose that the principle who will render to every man according to his works has no relevance to the believer would be to exclude good works from the indispensable place 
which they occupy in the biblical doctrine of salvation. So for the Christian, that this final assessment should have two primary impacts on them. First, it gives them the joyous expectation that there'll come a day when they will escape and be totally absent from, for all eternity, the presence of sin in their life uh, and the curse of sin on all creation. That will be done. There will be no such things in eternity. Revelation 21, 3-4 talks about that. It says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling of place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So the anticipation of that day gives us that hope, the joy that we will have on that day. But there's a second thing that will give us. It will give us the reality check of a future accounting as the way that we have lived in the past and present. We will have to account for how we have lived. And that's what we read here in verse 7 in 1 Peter 4, where uh, Peter writes, The end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. So Peter says two things out of resolve uh, in you knowing there is a future accounting on that final day, that we should be self-controlled. It seems to me to be self-controlled in our thinking. That should transform now the way that we think about life. Totally transform us. It's similar to what we read in 2 Corinthians 10.5, which says, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and here's the key thought, and take every thought captive to obey Christ. To take every thought captive to obey Christ. Self-control. But also sober-minded. We have to be sober-minded. This is the opposite of being drunk. That instead of being drunk, uh, we are to be sober. We should be instead intoxicated with the Spirit of God. That's what we read in Ephesians 5.18, where Paul writes, And do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And filled means to be controlled by. We should be intoxicated by the Spirit of God. Because the Spirit is at work in the lives of the people of God to lead them to a life of holiness. And when we obey Him and His leading in us, and we tap into the power He gives us, that same power that raised Jesus from the dead, that when we are a people that live a sober-minded life, we are intoxicated with the Spirit of God. So self-controlled and sober-minded. So then Peter goes on to write that clear views of the end impact how we live now about two areas. Our communion with God is impacted. And secondly, our love for one another is impacted. Let's look at those two things. Our communion with God is impacted. Verse 7, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. One of the primary reasons we allow the clear views of the end to impact the way we live now uh, is to the way it should transform our prayers. 
It should transform how we pray. It should transform what we pray. It should transform when we pray. It transforms us. Clear views of the end transforms an independent people into a God-dependent people. If we're not praying much, we're not depending much, are we? If we're not praying much, we're not depending much. When we pray little, we self-trust much. Clear views of the end ought not to let us live that way. We are to live as dependent people. Puritan Matthew Henry writes, those who live without prayer live without God in this world. We are living independent of God. It's always been helpful for me to be reminded of the British pastor and theologian Charles Spurgeon who, who said this. He says, we should pray when we are in a praying mood. For it would be sinful to neglect so fair an opportunity. We should pray when we're not in a praying mood. For it would be dangerous to remain in so unhealthy a condition. It should impact our relationship with God. We become people who pray much. We are a dependent people because we have clear views of the end. Secondly, and this is where we'll spend most of our time, that our love for one another is impacted by clear views of the end. Our love for one another is impacted by clear views of the end. So not only is our communion with God through prayer impacted, but so is our love for each other. Look at verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Our love for one another is to be far from ordinary. It's to be extraordinary. It is to be a love that is earnest, Peter writes. Earnest means fervent. Earnest means unceasing. This is the only time in all of Scripture that word's used. We are to be fervent and unceasing in our love for one another. Our love for each other isn't to be fickle. It's not biased. It's not convenient. It's not half-hearted. It's not self-serving. It's the opposite of all those things. It might remind you of that love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, which says love never ends. No vacations for love. We are to ought always to love each other. Fervent love reminds me of the fervency sometimes you see in March. If you like basketball, you might catch the fever. And we have, therefore, submitted to March madness. There is a bit of madness if you're a basketball fan in March. There is a zeal at that time of the year for basketball fans. They become a bit of a fanatic, don't they? Winston Churchill says this about a fanatic. He says a fanatic is someone who can't change his mind and won't change the subject. <laughs> Isn't that what we should be in our love for each other? That nothing changes in our mind and nothing changes as the subject matter of our life than it is to love each other. It is always on our mind. It is always our call. I am always to love. Not with bias or bigotry, to love everyone, every brother and sister, 
every man, woman, and child. I am to love them as Christ has loved me. I like this, what we read in Romans 15, Paul writes, we who are strong have an obligation not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up, for Christ did not please himself. We live to please others. We live to serve them. We know that we are making progress in this, if we can experience what he talks about here in 1 Peter, that love covers a multitude of sins. You know that you're going to struggle to sin, you will fail to sin if you're a scorekeeper. If you keep score of how people fail you, and it makes you angry, bitter, distance from them, it's the opposite of love covering a multitude of sins. So if we have a Christ-like love for each other, we cover sin. Our role is not to expose it. There are times when it does need to be done lovingly, but as a habit, as a pattern of life, I am called to cover sin. I don't keep score. In intimate relationships, like in marriage, I can tell you as a pastor that a great a deal of time, if not the majority of the time, that uh, couples come to see me, that the thing that's very clear at the very outset is that both people are keeping score. It's like they throw a fishing line, about this much of a ball of a fishing line in my table, and they basically say, untangle our lives. Well, I can't untangle anything unless you're willing to cover sin. You've got to be able to cover sin. Not to expose it, cover it. Peter teaches us here that one of the ways that we show our love for each other is by the way that we use the gifts that God's given us for the benefit of our brothers and sisters. When I was pastoring in Charlottesville, uh, Virginia, the senior pastor, Skip Ryan, shared three models of a unhealthy church and one model of a healthy church that has always stuck with me. It's very helpful to remember these things. Let me tell you what he talked about regarding three models of an unhealthy church. An unhealthy church uses a football model. It's a football model church. Bud Wilkinson, the former coach years ago, you probably may, may not have even heard his name unless you're my age, uh, former coach at Oklahoma, uh, one time defined football like this. He says, football is 11 men who are desperately in need of rest being watched by 80,000 people desperately in need of exercise. <laughs> What's unfortunate is that a great number of churches are exactly like that. You've got a hardworking, exhausted core and everybody else is a spectator. That's an unhealthy church. That's not the kind of church the scripture talks about. The football model church. Second model of churches that Skip taught and that has stuck with me uh, is the church that we call a bus model church. The bus model church uh, is a church that's driven by the pastor and that bus goes great places as long as that pastor is driving that bus. It goes everywhere, anywhere, because he is so skilled and gifted. 
But when he's not on the bus, that bus is pretty stationary. It doesn't go anyplace. That is not a healthy church. The pros should not be doing all the work. It should be done by the work of all, not one or two or three. That's the bus model church. The bottle model church is a church like a bottle of wine uh, that is corked at the top. Uh, and that good wine that's in that bottle doesn't get out unless a cork gets out of the way. The cork in the church is the leadership of the church. That there's no initiative able to come out of that bottle because the, this, the, the leaders control everything to the degree that nothing really gets out. It is suppressed. Nothing is done well because of that suppression by the leaders. Everything needs to be approved. Everything needs to be run by those leaders to the extent where their gifts are muffled and not able to be used because it's being stuffed, stuffed down. It can't get out. That's the bottle model church. Football model church, bus model church, bottle model church. All three are unhealthy churches. So what is the one healthy model? It's the body model church. It's the body model. 1 Peter 4.10, in our passage, talks about it. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. We are the body of Christ. And God, in his sovereignty, uh, in his providence, has gifted each member of that church, everybody who says, I am a Christian, has been gifted by the Spirit of God with at least one gift that they've been given to give away for the health of the church. Most have more than one gift. So we've been given this gift to serve the church. So like this body here, this body has all the gifts it needs to be healthy. God has sovereignly endowed this body with the gifts that it needs to grow and to mature and to become disciples of Christ. You have been given that gift by God. He has sovereignly done that. He has known about this body from all eternity. He sent his son to die for this, for, this, for this body. And he has gifted this body to serve each other that it might grow up to full maturity in Christ. It lacks no good gift that it needs to grow. So we are a steward. Each one is a steward of a spiritual gift, at least one spiritual gift. A spiritual gift is what? It's a special gift uh, given by the Holy Spirit to every believer according to God's grace to serve the body of Christ. It is other-centered. It is not centered on the person who's gifted. It is centered on the people that are around that individual who has been given those gifts. Now, elsewhere in Scripture, it talks a lot about gifts than the rest of Scripture. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, uh, 1 Peter 4. It's talked about a lot. Ephesians 4. It's talked about a lot in Scripture. But in, in the letter to the Corinthians, Paul gives a warning to the church at Corinth who's abusing gifts in the wrong ways, emphasizing one particular gift at the exclusion of the other gifts, and it's an unhealthy church. So he tells them two things uh, that are fatal diseases in the church that they should correct. First of all, he says this, he says, because your gifts are God's, because your gifts are God's and not yours, you should never think, I don't belong to this body. Listen to uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 15 through 18. 
Paul writes, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. So a fatality to the church is to think that people don't need me. I don't belong. I don't fit in. I can't serve. When I was pastoring uh, in uh, Charlottesville, a team of us put together a material of identifying one spiritual gift and how to use them in the church. And it's a seminar that takes several weeks to go through. And I do continue to use that. I have used that at Covenant Presbyterian Church in, in Nashville. And one of the students uh, in that one of those classes wrote a poem about this very issue I'm talking about, about I don't belong. And the title of this poem is, Lord, Did You Say I'm an Eyelash? Let me read uh, to you her poem. Her name is Patty. Patty wrote this. All this talk about gifts and such, bloom where you're planted, it's just too much to put together, but I've been contemplating, and I must say I've been patient, Lord, in the waiting for you to reveal to me where I stand. Am I a head? A foot, a finger, or a hand? I thought I heard you say you're an eyelash. But oh, to be a hand would be grand, uh, to praise and clap and touch those in need, or a foot to help go and plant your seed near and far. Uh, that is important indeed. A knee would be nice, to bow to you, Lord, to pray like Daniel and to show you're adored. I bet a knee is never bored. And then again, I heard you say you're an eyelash. Let me be an ear, Lord. Then I can hear when you whisper your word, you'll always be near. Then I can tell the tongue what to say. And, oh, if I were a tongue, I would talk all day. And I promise I will speak only what you say. Please, Lord, anything but an eyelash. What can such an insignificant part do? What if I fall out? And then who of use, what abuse am I to you? I'll be finished and nothing. My job will be done. I don't think being an eyelash is very much fun. But I'll be obedient. I'll do what you say. Please tell me, what can an eyelash do anyway? And you said, an eyelash, your job is very important indeed. And continuous praise as you look up at me. I see no part as less or more. You'll learn in my strength your job is no chore. For without you, I lie doing your part, feeling the tears that flow from my heart, and seeing with my eyes the things you will see, you're important because you are part of me. We should never say, I don't belong to the body. But there's a second tragic thing to think, and that is you don't belong to the body. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12. He says, as it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the foot, I have no need of you. We can never say to each other, you don't belong. That can never be said, because it's never true. We all belong, brothers and sisters. We all belong. And God's gifted you 
to use that gift that he has given you that that body might grow up and be mature. So we understand then that clear views of the end impact how we live now. It impacts our communion with God and it impacts our love for one another. So in closing, let me just say these few things. That first of all, I want you to understand and think about this, that the church is a family. It's not a commodity. This is not Costco or your favorite shopping center, and we don't go to another place that has a better sale. Uh, we are a body. You are a family. You're not a commodity. So we treat each other as family members. That God has made each member of that family, each member here, with spirit, empowered abilities that other brothers and sisters in this church need. So the call is to be a good steward of what I know is what I'm gifted to do. So it requires that I have an attitude that I am a servant of my brothers and sisters in this body. Again, verse 10 says, as each has received the gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. So every saint, every believer is in charge of that gift. You are a steward of that gift. Now here's the important thing to recognize, that this church will only be as mature as each one uses their gifts to serve the brothers and sisters. That's the extent to which you will be mature that this body will grow in the way that God desires it to grow. So if you don't know what your spiritual gifts are, and you kind of say, well, okay, I, I don't know what I'm gifted to do, what would you suggest for me? Well, let me give you three suggestions that might help you. First of all, I suggest that you risk serving your brothers and sisters in a lot of different ways. You don't remember or know or believe what your gifts are by going out and sitting under the apple tree and meditating about what are my gifts. You do it by serving. And you're going to experience by varieties of ways you serve what is effective and fruitful by the way you serve and what is not. You're going to have some failures and bad experiences. You're going to have some very healthy ones. But you're not going to be able to identify what your gifts are if you don't begin serving someplace. So begin serving. Just give it a try. See if it works. You don't know if the shoe fits until you try it on. Try it on. Serve. And by that, you can begin to identify what your gifts are. Secondly, recognize when you serve the internal confirmation that comes when you do it. If you are serving and you think and feel every time you do this, I hate this. Well, I don't think God's called you to hate using your gifts. So just, okay, that's probably not suited the best for you to do this as a gifted area of ministry. Try something else. And identify the areas where you feel very much inside affirmed. This fits me. I enjoy this. When I do, do this, it seems to be successful and useful to those I serve. Thirdly, recognize external confirmation. Listen to people who say the things they say to you when you serve in that way. They might say, you know, what you just did was great. Thank you so much for serving me in that way. They'll compliment you. Listen to the compliments. And by the way, be a complimenter of other brothers and sisters in the church to help them identify their gifts. Speak up. Talk to them. Share how you respond to them. 
So serve, internal confirmation, external confirmation. You will begin to discover what you're gifted to be and do. So anybody in the church, everyone in the church is called to be this. I love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 12. Listen to this. He says, so with yourselves, since you were eager for manifestations of the Spirit, talking about gifts, listen to what Paul says. Strive to excel in building up the body of Christ. Did you hear that? Strive to excel in building up the body of Christ. So if this church is going to excel, it's going to require each of you to excel in using what God's given you. He's not asking you to use something you don't have or something you wish you had, but you don't seem to be able to locate it. He's asking you to use something the Spirit of God's given you and empowered you to use. And when you do, the church matures. It builds up the church. So even though these gifts are supernaturally endowed by the Spirit of God, uh, that's not enough for you to use them effectively. You need to recognize and understand that you're also spiritually empowered to use those gifts. You're endowed with gifts to use, and then you're empowered to use them by the Holy Spirit. Puritan John Owen said this. He said, The duties God requires of us are not in proportion to the strength we possess in ourselves. Rather, they are proportional to the resources available to us in Christ. We do not have the ability in ourselves to accomplish the least of God's task. This is the law of grace. When we recognize it is impossible for us to perform a duty in our own strength, we will discover the secret of its accomplishment. But alas, Owens writes, this is a secret we often fail to discover. May God give this church grace to be a people that are found who strive to excel in building up the body of Christ by the faithful use of your gifts that he's given for you for the health of this body. Let me pray. Lord, what a blessed people we are. Thank you, Lord, for entrusting us with these gifts of the Spirit to serve. Thank you, Lord, that we are people that need each other. We need the gifts that you've given others to be extended to us, that we may know you in a different way, experience you in a more powerful way, that we might grow up in Christ by the sharpening and help that comes from our brothers and sisters in Christ. I pray this church would be known for its extraordinary servanthood in the use of its gifts to each other. That people would sense it when they're here, they would experience it in their times that they spend here, that they would mature because this church is a church faithful to use the gifts endowed to them by the very Spirit of God. In Christ's name, amen.